Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's topic of the week. My name is Alec, and we have Josh here. Uh, we also are doing our video recordings as well, so you will see our faces on YouTube. Um, so yeah, it's a little new software we're trying out. So something, something to, something to mess around with, huh, Josh? Yeah, it's been pretty good so far. Like it. Yeah. So we're going to go straight into it for this week's topic. Um, we're going to be talking about strengthening international institutions. Um, the reason we did this is because after our visit to multiple international organizations, we found one common theme and is that international institutions still need more work in order to be more of a direct. How do I say this? Not direct, but more effective organization meaning they have more power to do things if i worded that Absolutely. correctly josh i didn't want to i yeah. didn't want to sound too dictatorial but no that, that it, is true yeah these international organizations need to be more not useful but more just direct with what their goals are if you're the world trade organization for example you are in charge of dealing with trade disputes internationally and you are right but it's just there's a lot of red tape still involved but before we go into all the nitty-gritty details i just want to talk about some in general stuff um so the number of international uh, governmental organizations is uh increasingly um going up in recent decades uh the the initial motivation to start these organizations was to promote dialogue and find global solutions to global problems post world war ii um and since world war ii there's been the the start of the united nations of course and then breakout international organizations to try to have different focuses on a lot of different things um but the problem with most of these organizations is that they're still being influenced by interest groups um and there's a lot of uh national interest still plaguing these international organizations which is affecting its ability to be effective yep absolutely and so international institutions, we visit all of them, not all of them, but a lot of them in Europe. Uh, we visited the World Trade Organization, uh, World Health Organization. We visited NATO. We visited the UN in Geneva. All really cool places to see, you know, see where a lot of the world's most important issues are being discussed and policies being created. But he's, Alec is very correct in, in the sense that it is just, they're not as strong as they need to be. And there's a lot of selfish interest, especially from the bigger countries, like, uh, for example, the countries on the P5 and the Security Council, which include Russia, France, United Kingdom, China, and the United States. So the, the institutions need to be strengthened in order to be more effective. And I don't know about you, Alec, but I have a couple of uh, points that I want to discuss. But the first one that I want to discuss, this is very difficult to do, unfortunately. But I think it should be universal. The first is, especially within the UN, is to accept every country into the UN that has, a, that has borders at the moment. So that would include countries like Palestine and Kosovo. Even though they're not recognized, they should be. They should all be recognized in the UN by a majority vote, not by a, you know, everybody has to accept them. That's got to be the first thing. And I also think they need to be accepted to every institution within the UN. So it's not just like ECOSOC has like 50 countries. Got to be all 
so it could have more representation. So what you're saying is whatever country, whatever territory that is not yet fully recognized be up for just an immediate vote and then reform the all the institutions by adding all 100 and let's say Palestine and Kosovo are and there are 195 countries now instead of 50 here, 70 here and 30 here is what you're saying. Exactly, because I believe there's 216 countries that have borders and people that recognize themselves as a separate entity from whatever they're supposed to be a so part of or, countries or not and territories. Yeah, so I would say all 217 of those, which include places like Kosovo and Palestine, be recognized by the UN and then put onto every single institution. Now, what are your reservations going to be for the people listening? First thing is going to be, well, if you add more countries, then there's going to be more, you know, there's going to be more discourse, which could lead to less things getting done, which is correct. But, but... (laughs) In the in other scenario, you have more countries, and if you change and you have to restructure the system to majority vote in all institutions, then you create more things getting done and more representation. Representation is the most important part. First off, that that getting getting stuff done because when you when the UN passes stuff, it's not law. If you, if you don't know, it's not law unless it's passed by the Security Council. If the General Assembly passes something, it's technically just a guideline. But if it's a universal guideline that's accepted by 160 countries, I mean, come on, that's good. You need more representation. Why would we I think that's it where, though, where it's um, 160 countries except one guideline, it just becomes law. I would agree. I would. I think that. I think the one problem Even is that the Security Council would shut it, it down. It, it's a hot take, but it's again, this is an international organization. The self-interest of 30 countries should not be able to dominate the course of the entire world. I agree. And, and one of the things that the Security Council, I don't understand, is it's called the Security Council. They should just deal with all issues of security, correct? You would think. That's, that just makes you sense. And then you have the UN General Assembly, which deals with all things. That's why it's called the General Assembly. You deal with all things. And if they could have the structure of the Security Council minus the veto, where every country gets one vote, and when that thing gets passed, it's law. Not guideline. Law. You have to follow it in order for... Now, this is obviously difficult, but this is something that the UN needs to think about to restructure... How we look at things. If you want climate change issues to get fixed, you have to have law, not guidelines. Law. China doesn't follow them. Russia doesn't follow them. Most of the countries in Africa aren't going to follow them. Most of the countries in Asia. Most of the countries in Latin America. Why? Because they don't have the money. And they don't want, they want to, they think, oh, the West got to pollute the world. Well, why don't we to get rich? That's not fair. So they have to have more something universal that could be law. There's a lot of That's... little little things within what you said that because going back to whole like just the hypothetical climate change stuff, right? Because that country is going to be like, well, 
Now, if I have to vote on this climate change thing and I'm up to not up to those standards just yet, then I can't get there. I think the most important part of getting to an established piece of law is diplomacy within the UN and dialogue. And that's what it's designed for. And you would yeah. think that there'd be enough because I think it takes like what? one to two years just to create one guideline almost and have it up for a long time it it takes a while the the legislative process takes a while anyways right yeah so why not be rewarded with the ability to make it law rather than just a guideline because now you have all this discussion where you have a third world country and a first world country both are going to vote on something climate change related and the restriction of co2 emissions within yeah. that but you can have within the law within the law you can have certain little how do i say this like guidelines within the law like let's say if you reach up to a point of this level of industry or in this level of innovation you get this leeway and you get to point b and you get this much leeway and then you're fully industrialized and developed then you can start following not not following laws, but you can uh, you start enjoying the benefits of whatever agreement comes out, right? So what I'm trying to say is uh, what I'm trying to do is promote inclusivity within the actual legislative process and the law because yeah. not there's going to be a lot of pushback should the law feel should the the member state feel that this law is not uh, is not good enough for them to develop and it's too restrictive. So that, that, that's kind of my only concern. But at the end yeah. of the day, I, I still be, I still strongly believe that guidelines should not be a thing and it should just be law anyways. And then you should have binding things because you spend all that time, all that effort just for what? A guideline? And then another yeah. member state will just choose, choose not to follow it. What is gonna, the UN going to do? Oh, bad Nothing. view. <laughs> Slap your hand and that's it. Yeah, and, and that's where I think when you read working papers for people who haven't done anything like Mama UN or, or, or read an actual working paper and how the, the, the language is used, you know, you can implement certain things in there. You know, this is a law. We want to cut carbon emissions by 50% by 2050 across all countries, period. But add little things in those laws. The West helps invest in countries that need it so if you want to add green tech to your country you don't have the money let's use uh colombia for an example colombia might not have the infrastructure to invest in green tech at the moment but who does brazil who does the u.s who does england they could use that to incentivize colombia to give them direct investment to build those that green tech within Colombia, their companies get tax breaks and they can start creating new trade deals and all of a sudden people are sustained to be developing. So you use friendly language to help them out. And you don't give like time like I would say get rid of time periods when you make laws. You know, we want all things to be done by twenty fifty because a country like Colombia we'll is gonna look make- at that and be like, Yeah, we're not gonna make that. So if we vote no we look bad but if we vote yes then all of a sudden we have to turn around our economy in the next what what years at 20 27 or the next 27 years 
And that's tough to do. You'd think 27 years, but like 27 years, how long did it take us to build the freaking phone? You know, how long did it take us to build windmills, to build boats in our society? It's not easy. So even within law, you don't have to like address specific member states. You could just say exactly things yeah. within if you do X, Y, and Z as a part of the law, you meet all requirements of said innovation law. You get to enjoy these benefits highlighted by this law under section, I don't know, 17, right? A hypothetical. And section 17 says you can get free trade within these member states. I don't know. Just something. An incentive program. Oh, but everything that it's just all binding. It's all binding by the end of the day. And you get to where you need to be. Even if 30 or 40 countries don't agree with it, it's still going to be international. I mean, this is how politics works. This is how democracies have worked. If majority, if the minority hasn't agreed, majority have agreed, it's still law at the end of the day. Yes. And people argue this inclusivity stuff and all that. I, I don't mind having to wait two, three years for a very thick bill to come out saying this, this, and this. If it, if the yeah. entire process is inclusive, I don't mind waiting yeah. as long as there's direction. If that and makes if sense. And if it solves the issue too. If it solves if the issue. Like it's, issue, it's not exactly. just a guideline. Because, if it takes you know, by, five years to solve a 20 year problem, that's fine. That yeah. That is fine. As long as it's all inclusive. And then, Within three to five years, you will probably get to 90% of all member states agreeing to it anyways. Yeah, exactly. And, and here's, here's the other thing when I brought up earlier about accepting every country to the UN. That increases the budget. So you're adding another you know, 24 countries. That increases the UN budget. Also, we should, and we should be forcing the developing world like Europe, like the UK, like, like the United States, like China to increase their budget to the UN. The United States contributes $2 billion to the UN. Now that's a lot of money, but if you look at the U S GDP at the 25.3 trillion dollars, it really isn't. The whole UN budget is $6 billion. The UN budget should be at least to cover all these international institutions to cover all of our issues should be at least 20 billion to cover these issues, to help solve these problems, to be able to give money to countries, to have investment. And then you have, obviously you have the world bank and obviously you have the IMF that also gives money to these, biz, uh, to these incentives, but it, the UN itself needs more money to help run and solve these problems or else we're never going to solve these problems. Money solves a lot of issues. It will. It does. I think the big concern is sovereignty. It's like Always. the bigger these international institutions get, then there's a sovereignty issue. But here's the thing, right? Within the United States Constitution, we have what some, some argue that it's not necessary. Some argue it's a fail safe, which is the Second Amendment. Should the government get too big, people can take up their arms to go against the government or form private militias. And I feel like we shouldn't have that same fail safe where we say, all right, we're just going to declare war on the international organizations, but there should be some sort of fail safe within the expansion of these international organizations. Should an international, should a a member state feel that sovereignty 
is being questioned. And I think that's the most important part is including a fail-safe mechanism. Yeah, absolutely. And and sovereignty is always going to be questioned. And, and when you have something that is a binding contract, that already, I mean, just look at, at the terms of Brexit, you know, with the EU, that created a sovereignty issue within their politics. But at the end of the day, you know, if you join the institution, you know, why, why, why join the institution if you're not going to want to solve the problems of the institution? Like, what's the yeah. whole reason of the UN, you know, to solve world issues? Well, okay, if you want to solve world issues, you have to do things that are going to be a little bit more binding. They're going to be law that are going to stomp on your sovereignty. But at the end of the day, you're solving world issues. Correct. Uh, it it doesn't make any sense. That's fair. Yeah, it's very yeah. fair. Because when you are signing up, you're solving a world issue, not a national issue. Yeah. That's fair. Very fair. And for a lot of people who are sitting there like, oh, well, you know, why, why, why would we try to help? We should solve issues within our home. Why are you not doing that? It's like, listen, I get it. We got to solve problems within ourselves. But if you actually really, truly understand politics in today's modern society and understand economics and understand national security issues and foreign policy, everything that happens out there affects what's going on in here. It's, Every it's single a big domino effect. Yeah. So, while you may think that investing in foreign oil is bad for U.S. economy, um, it's not. It's good. We should invest in foreign oil. We should invest in our own security for our oil as well. I'm not saying that. But you need to do that because what happens out there is that if we don't invest out there in the oil, well, you take out U.S. investment, then all of a sudden, I mean, this would never happen in terms of oil, but this is the first thing that came to my head. All of a sudden, <laughs> you take out U.S. investment in oil, and then everything collapses. Well, guess what? We got no more oil. <laughs> so, what do you do? Our wells are going to dry up. Yeah. Like, what do you do at that point? And, and oil is probably a bad example, but it it, it it just just trying to show you what happens is that everything let me let me better that example for you right yeah you, yeah, you yeah please do foreign oil you bring in foreign oil to use for your manufacturing process within the united states to develop the green tech and then sell it out to the rest of the world yeah everything that happens out there affects what's going on in the us and it is the same with every country every country has the same issue we're all too intertwined to ignore What's going on across the world? Mm -hmm. it's no, that's fact. yep, that is. And I wanna, I wanna move on now to, unless, well, do you have another thing you want to talk about on your list? Because there's one thing I do want to talk about. Nope. Yeah, go for it. I got, I got. Uh, I want to talk later. about the problem with uh, trying to influence the international organizations, and the yes. part, particularly the most. Really interesting thing that we've talked about, uh, Josh, was in the World Trade Organization and how the United States has such an influence on the WTO that they're trying to stop um, adding the appellate system into – well, they have yeah. it, but they're they're refusing to continue with it because it stopped in I think in 2020 or 2021. I'm not sure what year it was Yeah, where they stopped um, adding other members to the appellate system because of the United States' fear – of it backfiring on them 
which here's my biggest ick with that is why should one country have influence over an international organization? Organization. You are a part of this organization. You are part of the World Trade Organization to, to dispute trades, to, to have this system where you can rely on should an issue arise between a member state. Why should one country say we can we can do this in the world and we can't do this in the world? Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's fascinating because almost every organization has a similar thing where it's one country, one vote. But all countries have to agree to an issue. So again, like you said, every country has to agree to a judge to be an appellate in the world trade. One country disagrees, judges aren't appointed. The U.S. disagrees with every judge. There is no more judges for the appellates. Like why? Just, yeah. What's the point of the organization then? Yeah, and so you. It's the same like in the Security Council with the veto. What you need to do, and you need to get rid of it. And people are going to be like, well, if you get rid of it, aren't you going to cause more tensions between those organizations, between those countries? Because if th- if the United States doesn't want them, but the rest of the World Trade Organization does want them, well, the U.S. is going to be pissed and they might pull out. I will argue that the U.S. – okay, Trump might be a little bit of an example that we were, we were going to pull out, but he didn't. I would argue the U.S. is never going to pull out of these institutions for, for many reasons. One, it looks bad. It looks bad. It looks bad. And, and, and two, we always record, we always change the cycle. We always have a different president. You know, so even if we do pull out, we'll be right back in. And I don't think we should ever pull out, period. China's never going to pull out. Why would they never pull out? Because they have influence. Russia's not going to pull out. They have influence. But you need to get rid of some of their strengths in their influence, like that vote. Uh, like the it, the overall Security Council veto power, right? Yeah, like veto it's, power or like, you know, the yeah. in, in the World Trade Organization. You know, that if the one person doesn't want it, no one gets it. it, it it's not effective. And it goes back to the thing about just having that overall majority vote if majority say they don't want to have that p5 veto power then that's just how it should be but countries the p5 countries are going to be like well we don't want to be a part of it a part of this organization anymore because they don't have the power and it's like why lose out on the benefits of international organizations that you're a part of just for some power you're going to go back to isolationism and we're going to see a, a brexit issue just expand over time Again. Listen, the world is so intertwined with each other, and you know, humanity and things can happen. But I, I don't ever see any country going to war over these reform issues. I just don't see it. Why would the U.S. Why would China risk? Why would Russia risk going to war? Okay, Russia might be a bad example at the moment. Putin's crazy. <laughs> But why would the UK and France, why would the rest of them go to war? Because they didn't get their way in the Security Council, because they lose their veto power. Uh, you're, you're just going to tank your own economy. You're going to tank the world and, and ruin everything for yourself. You're not going to gain anything from it. You're not gaining nothing. It's exactly why China's not invading Taiwan and the US isn't retaliating. What do they get to gain? They could still be a permanent member. It's just they lose their veto power. They can still have yes. their quote-unquote influence in the Security Council, but... 
at the end of the day, all things that come out of the SC should be majority vote because anything that comes out of majority vote is just this is what the Security Council thinks and it's what we should do. And it should just be – well, it, it's binding, but I mean – how effective have binding security council resolutions been? I mean, they've been yeah. somewhat effective in the past, but now not so much. Not so much. And, and, and at the end of the day, we can look at it like this. Every country needs the U.S. Every country needs China. Every country needs Europe. So if if, if these countries are scared of losing their influence, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. You need I've their money. Yeah. yeah, you need their money. You need the diplomacy, and you you need their their militaries to protect you. You need them. I mean, without the U.S., Europe would have very little chance of standing up against Russia. Very little. It, it would be an all-out battle, destruction. With the U.S., though, Russia's not going into Europe. You need them. It just is. It just stopped. yeah. And if you put it that way, then. You really, you really don't lose out on the influence. I really don't like using that word, influence in the international institutions. Yeah. But I mean, it, it's it's the only step to take in order to start making the these organizations more binding, is to yeah. promote protection of their influence. Because even though if something passes that's binding, there, as you said, they're still going to go back to the bigger countries because they're the ones that have more money more tech more more tools that can get things done in the international yeah, stage I, I agree and, and i think that's yeah i agree and, and and the next point i want to bring up is the increasing and this is going to be controversial increasing private sector involvement within international institutions now when we went to the world health organization one of the things that they don't do is accept money from private institutions because they don't want to be influenced by that private institution I don't understand why people think that that's going to happen. Here, here's the thing. You the, – the, the, let's say IBM comes out and it's like we are giving the UN $2 billion to invest in infrastructure to make chips and, and, and to create jobs in developing countries. Stamp. Okay. So the UN takes that $2 billion and they – they invest it into those countries that, that are developing, you know, manufacturing plants. Why is that such a problem? I don't understand how I, people see that as, oh, the, they're influencing them to do something for them. It's like, no, no, they're not. If IBM truly wanted bad things to give them money, they would just do it themselves. Why would they have to go through the UN to do the bad thing when they can just use the money to do the bad thing? I don't understand or influence them in a different way. They can give them hush money. Why would they come out and say we're going to give them something to do good? Like what? I don't. I, I couldn't. I couldn't fathom why. Why the lady who we were talking to was like, we don't take any of the money because we don't want them to have influence on us. It's like, huh? What does that mean? <laughs> what do you mean by that? Like it, it's different when it comes at the level of like you give it to a politician because you're giving it to a person. That's a person. You know what that tells me? That tells me they can't handle them taking the money and using it responsibly. 
It is exactly. what I got. Exactly. That, that's exactly, exactly the message is sent. Because who would who would be dumb enough to to refuse this money, take it and use it for whatever that set company private organization wants? There needs to be oversight. That's it. That's it. There's only thing you need to do with that money is create an oversight committee, private or public. Both would be preferable to oversee the money. That's it. Simple. I don't understand why it's so difficult. Like no, I. I, I, I agree. I, I like I, I was. It was con. I I was thinking about. It. I was like, damn, this is going to be controversial. But the more the more I think about it, and the more you talk about it, it the the more it makes sense. Why why don't we have some more private lobbying firms within the United Nations to speak for the people? I mean. The lobbying firms, in my opinion, lobbying firms in general have been more effective in bringing private sector issues to the government instead of these quote unquote representatives that we have around the world. Uh, Lobbying groups have been very successful in talking with legislators and being kind of the the bridge between the people and um, and legislators. And why yeah. not have that on the international scale scale where we have lobbyists that can lobby the UN in case there's something that the private sector doesn't agree with that the public sector might agree with. Yeah. And, and here's here's the thing. People are always going to be like, well, because they look at the US model and they look at other po- lobbying models within the world and they're like, well, lobbyists do bad things. It's like, like, okay, you saw like what? Eight examples on TV of lobbyists doing bad things. And, and taking money and doing it for bad stuff. But how many lobbyists and lobbying firms are there in the world? Hundreds. There are, maybe not hundreds of thousands, but tens of thousands. And you see eight examples and you expect all of them to be like that? It's like, no, it's not It's not like that. And in the UN, it's so much different. Because if you, you're a country, you're not a person, you're a country at that point that is overseeing this issue. And if there is an, an issue... Where, where, where people are stealing money that's being given to them within the UN, usually it's going to be caught because the, the UN or that country is going to look at it and be like, hey, this money was supposed to be for X, Y, and Z, but it's you're not using, there. Yeah, you're using yeah, it first. Hey, yeah. I want to I talk real quick about these lobbying firms, right, in general and like my experience with lobbying firms. I have yeah. I've I've lobbied I've worked with lobbying firms within our own state in Connecticut for four or five months, and I cannot say nothing comes to mind. What if there's a bad lobbying firm? The lobbying firms there were all talking about uh, technological advancements in the state, early childhood development, the uh, uh, early childhood development programs, schools, etc. As lo- it's all money at the end of the day. You want someone to lobby for something, you just organize, you pull money, and you give it to a firm. They get it done. They'll put in whatever wording you want in legislation. And it's been I, – I could say in my opinion that lobbying in the state has been effective. The, the yeah. legislation process may not have been effective, but lobbying and getting to the point where it changes language on bills has been successful. And if we could take that model and put it on the international scale, scale where we have – even NGOs, right, pooling money together from people who want to, um, I don't know, they want to donate to a fund. And then in total, an international donation comes out to a total of a million dollars. That's enough to pay a lobbying firm to get things done. And it's be- and yeah. they, 
as long as it's enough to, and it goes back to the, the thing where you have binding laws and binding pieces of paper, right, with actual legislative language on there and the ability to, to pay lobbyists and change that language to fit whatever NGO wants, whatever the company wants, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's, it's a very important process and very yeah. important part to it. And you don't even need lobbying firms. Just, I think they should just be able to take oh, no, donations. Yeah, you just take donations. Here, oh, I, I, I just thought of this in my head. Hilarious. Is this, this example is so funny. I don't know when it was. It was about a year ago, maybe this time. Maybe, maybe a little longer. But the UN came out. And uh, the food program, the World Food Program, was like, we could solve world hunger with $6 billion. Elon Musk comes out and says, all right, oh, <laughs> I'm going to sell $6 billion in stock if you could prove to me with all the numbers that you could do it. Have you heard anything from the World Food Program about getting a $6 billion donation? Nope. Why? Because they couldn't prove it. Because they do not – they don't think they can handle it at the moment. Or they don't want to. A man was willing to give $6 billion to solve an issue. Why would you come out and say you could solve the issue? See the $6 billion in front of you. It's right there. They're, they can grab it. And nothing's done about it. It, it. it proves that the issue can't be handled within these institutions. Or they just don't want to solve the issue. And I understand there's many multi-layered facets that have to go into solving this problem. How, you know where the money is going to go. How many people can we hire to do the job? Uh, you know what what countries are going to be able to afford to put it out? Where are we going to get the food? How are we going to get enough food to do this? Yada yada yada. There's so many different things. But there was an opportunity right at their hands just to take the six billion and then do the planning later. Do most of the planning. Give Elon Musk what you want to do. Take the money and figure out how to do it. I I I don't get it. I don't get it. They. T- this is where we. I I I am full for increasing private sector involvement and and, and investment in institutions instead of just not taking it. And you know what I want to add too, which is another yeah. one of my points, is oversight. Now yes. that we've implemented. All of these things, right? We have binding bills. We have money flowing in and out of these international organizations. We need oversight. And I want to go back to the World Food Program's example where it's like, okay, they had $6 billion in front of them, but they basically told the international community that we can't handle it. And it's like, why? If we had that oversight, should the World Food Program take that money? And there's an oversight committee where it looks at what they're doing with the money and they can cross check within whatever, I'm just going to go beyond the world food program, right? Whatever organization is doing with that money and they could cross check it. I think that's the most important part of doing exactly of strengthening the international institution is oversight. If there's a sovereignty issue, you go to the oversight committee. If there's a money issue oversight committee and these committees and and this committee should just be one whole thing. It shouldn't be divided into an economic thing and a, a thing. It'll it'll have its different sectors, right? In the oversight committee, there's the economic section, there's the, I don't know, the political section, the so on and so forth, right? 
the, this most important part is oversight. And who who should oversight the international community is another debate. Is who do you check uh, all these 193 plus countries? And if we're including the territories to 217. Yeah. Uh, that's the, the biggest question. Dude, here's the thing. Do you really think Elon Musk was going to give the World Food Program $6 billion without hiring his own people to do oversight? Like, come on. We all know that they were going to do that. He, he was going to have to do that. It's his money. He wants to see where it's going. He, if he wants it to do something good, he's going to see where it's going. The World Food Program already has their own committee to do oversight on this. So does the UN. So you have three layers if anything goes wrong, you have three fail-safes to go through to see where the money is going and to see how it's being used. I mean, I, I just don't – I don't personally understand. So you're saying we don't really need the oversight should a member state or a private organization be handing over resources and they automatically have oversight of their own resources? They are the well. The first thing is is that the, in, in every committee within the UN, there's already oversight. We we know this. That is true. Within the UN, above this organization, the UN in general, the General Assembly is oversight. That's what their job is. That's basically the I mean, job. The there's General even Assembly. oversight by the Secretariat's office as well. Anyways, exactly, exactly. And then you you know for a fact because when when people are moving money, especially private sector, there's going to be people watching it. So you know sure. Musk was going to have his own oversight. So at the end of the day, I don't believe oversight is even an issue. I think it's just – okay, maybe lack of money that they might have to hire people to do the job. But if you get $6 billion, you have money there. I think it's a lack of willingness to actually do it. I really do. And it's not even – I think it's on the countries within the UN itself. And then the organization, because you have the oversight's there, the money's there. The only thing that's not there maybe is the facilities to do it. That could be dealt with separately, though. I just think it's a lack of willingness. I really do. Yeah, as unfortunate that's, as it sounds. That's that's pretty fair. Yeah, I I do believe there is unwillingness in the international organizations as well. Yeah, so it's sad. Yeah, because like one of the other points, and this is just be a small thing, is increasing youth involvement. You know, we we create all these youth programs, but you still see a lack of youth involvement within international institutions. Like what voice do they have? Yes, promote the youth, bring them in, but they still don't give them the voice that they deserve. Exactly, they're, they're, and, and, they're the heads of change, and why aren't they at the forefront of it? Why yeah. can't they offer, even if it's just one small thing? They could just offer some insight. What does the youth want? Yeah, and, and social media has been one of the crucial things that they've used to do so. But, I mean, if you look at the UN and its social media influence, I'm not 100%. I follow the UN. I'm going to – sorry, I just cut out. I follow the <laughs> UN, but they have over a million followers. I mean, I'm going to look it up right now, how many followers they have on Instagram. A good amount, probably in the millions. Oh yeah, I'm sure it's a lot. <laughs> uh, how many followers are? Uh, I follow the UN Instagram. How many followers? 
But regardless of whatever that, whatever the amount is, it's like, it's still not enough. It's not enough. Because the UN is so integral to what international systems do and what the world looks to. You know, a lot of people look to uh, the United Nations as the, like, their savior. And well, on not enough people page, know about they, it. They have 7.7 million. 7.7 million. And, and it's not that that's not a lot. Like, that's that's a lot. But there's 8 billion people on this planet. The UN should be the most followed thing on Instagram. Let's be real. It should be. Should. It's It shouldn't be Cristiano Ronaldo or, or Selena Gomez or Lionel Messi. should be or LeBron. It, it should be the UN. But that shows that they're not doing their job. They're, they're not going to reach out to the youth. How are you? And it just shows that like there's just no like they, there's there's just no public engagement. There people are not interested at what happens at these international institutions. Yeah. How Unless you're like a scholar. Or, yeah, or or in college or something. How can you expect youth involvement if the youth doesn't know what goes on? I mean, the people yeah. I talk to. The people that I talk to all the time, even in college and university, friends from home, friends from university, people I just meet, I mean, they don't even know half the issues that are going on in the world at the moment. And yes, there should be incentive. There, there should be a little bit more, you know, personal accountability for that, you know, reading the news and what's going on. I agree on that case. But like, also, if they're busy and they have work all the time, uh, I don't think the thing they want to do when they get home is research and see what's going on in the world. You know, like they, they worked an eight hour day. Why is that going to be the first thing they do? The first thing on their mind is what am I having for dinner and how am I going to feed my family myself? How am I going to feed the cat or the dog? You know, like, do I got to clean the house? We have to make it available to them to where they see it, where it's on TV or where it's on their phone when it pops up, you know, it's just not there for them. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Fully agree. But I th- I think we hit everything unless there's any other points. Um, I I hit all my points on here. Yeah. I, I'm, we kind of have good. We kind of have the same things going on. Yeah. But, I mean, for all the people out there, just please, like, you know, I hope that we're we're spreading awareness because our international institutions, like, while we do both agree that they need a lot of work and that sometimes they may not be effective. We also both agree that they, they're important, that what they represent is change togetherness. And we need people to, to, to spread, to spread what's going on in the world, to spread what the UN does. Because while we may not see it as Americans or as people from the UK, but you know, who does see it, you know, you know, Kenyans, uh, you know, Chileans, you know, poor, poor people in Indonesia, you know, even poor people within the United States, they see what the UN does, you know, how important it is. Mabubani said that if you tell an American, a rich American that the UN is important, they're going to say, oh, no, why are we giving our money to them? But if you tell someone from a poor area within, uh, let's say, you know, Senegal, they're going to be like, oh, the UN is like 
the best thing ever. It's the reason why I have food. You know, it's important to distinguish that. We don't see it, but a lot of people, most people do see the benefits of the UN and the international institutions. Fantastic book. Fantastic. Yeah. One of the best Very reads. fantastic book. Yeah, Baba Bonnie's book. Please read it. It's amazing. It's an amazing book. Easy read. Explains everything that's wrong with the institutions and how to fix it. Yeah, for there. real. It's, it's, it's great. Yeah. But I hope you guys learned a lot from this. So uh, that'll be our conclusion for this episode. Yeah. Thank you guys for all tuning in. Uh, we hope you're liking the videos and on YouTube. Uh, they'll be uploading very shortly for those who uh, haven't seen them yet. But uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you, everyone. Take care. See you in the next episodes.